Hello and welcome along to the World Game Live. It's fantastic to have your company this Wednesday, the 30th of September. I'm your host, Louis Zellick. Welcome along to the show. We've got a massive program coming up for you over the next hour and more. And with me to do it all, of course, is my beloved co-host coming to you straight from his home here in Sydney is Nick Stoll, aka Stolich, SBS Sport Journalist. Welcome to you, Stolich. How are you, my friend? I'm very excited. It is an exciting day for Australian football. It is certainly an exciting day and with us to talk through it all, it's so wonderful to welcome back the company of a, a real friend of the World Games here, women's football expert, contributed to The Guardian, also over at Optus Sport more recently, as well as the World Game here at SBS. Welcome back to you, Samantha Lewis. How are you, Sammy? I am buzzing, I have to say. What a, what a moment. Again, another great moment for women's football in Australia coming off the Women's World Cup. This is just, yeah, this is great. And also apologies to anyone listening. There's like a thousand things happening outside of my window, including a guy who just came in with a leaf blower. So that may affect things. I apologise in advance. Hey, it's the climate that we're operating in. You know, you might hear a baby crying from my end, neighbours having an argument. I mean, I hope for everybody's sake watching that you don't. But there's always something going on when you're working remotely. But, of course, speaking of things going on, it has been a massive time in Australian women's football. And with us, we're so delighted to welcome back Sarah Walsh. You've been a guest of ours previously, but it's great to have your company here, Football Federation Australia's Head of Game Development and Women's Football. Walsh. How are you first and foremost? Have you come down from the high off the back of the announcement just yet? Uh, I have actually, but uh, I mean, it's, we kept it under wraps for a little bit there. But um, look, it, it's such exciting news for the game, not just the women's game. And, and it just seems to be kind of rolling on from the bid, doesn't it? Uh, we, we, we won the Women's World Cup 2023 and now we have uh, someone at the, the realm to, to be able to drive the outcomes we want from that. So it's such an exciting time for the game. And um, I guess I was pleased and heartened by the the commentary and um, you know the wide acceptance from the football community because that's obviously very important whilst it is. We'll stay with you. I have to ask you, um, you know, why he was the right man for the job because you, of course, were a part of the selection committee. But can you tell us sort of what went into a lot of the decision-making processes? Yeah, I can, Lucy. Um, so it, it was quite comprehensive. We, we spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, you know, what are the qualities and attributes that that we need from, from this coach over the next four years? And given that it was four years, there was so much uh, riding on getting it right. Uh, we actually conducted a, um, a comprehensive analysis on uh, the 12, 12 top uh, national teams and 12 top leagues in, in, the, uh, in the world to actually start to think about where the gaps are um, in, in terms of squad depth, um, our opponents. Uh, from that analysis, we were able to build out some criteria. And I think you can, it's fair to say they're bucketed in three three areas. There was performance, technical and tactical in terms of the experience, uh, runs on the board that they have, leadership, management style, um, and equally as important was leaving a lasting legacy through the Women's World Cup 2023. Uh, I might just go through those, those three buckets a little bit. Um, there's been a lot of talk around, uh, I know James Johnson has talked about uh, this coach not needing training wheels. And um, I think that's resonated with particularly the women's football community. It was really important yeah. that uh, this coach had runs on the board in the women's game, given the nuances um, there are in terms of coaching women um, over coaching men. And I think this was really important qualifier for us. Um, from that, you know, national, international coaching experience club, um, national team experience and um, it's fair to say that Tony has that in spades. Um, leadership and management style, uh, 
demonstration of you know developing a strong team culture and leadership. Everyone that we asked um, and 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 built references for Tony, uh, basically confirmed everything that that we know about him is that uh, he's collaborative, he's inclusive, he likes to empower the people around him. These are all the qualities we were looking for. Um, you only, only have to look at the youth that he was able to bring into the team, like Rose Lavelle, uh, Sam Ewis. From 2020-15, he was um, largely responsible for bringing these new players who obviously started in the final, the World Cup final in 20, 2019, and, um, you know, Rose Lavelle scored on the big stage, and he's awfully proud of that. And um, given the analysis that we did prior to developing the criteria, uh, we have a lot to do in terms of building a, a broader squad depth for this team, which he has first-hand experience in. Le leaving a legacy for the Women's World Cup, um, throughout the process, it, it, it came through very strong that, that Tony has a serious commitment to this area. What do we mean by that? Um, mentoring the, the female coaches, getting more women in the game, he sees it as a, a responsibility of his to, to be able to utilise the, the Matildas profile, put them on a platform um, by winning medals, winning World Cups. Um, to be able to give them uh, that being the catalyst for us to get women in the game, um, he, he sees as his ex, his responsibility to mentor the female coaches around him, and um, he's already demonstrated this through working with some of the best female coaches in the world, with Pia Suntark, Jill Allison. Uh, this was really themed through the the recruitment process, and um, we have great confidence that he takes that role quite seriously, and. Um, where we're we obviously aligned on our values in the next four years um, in terms of building a legacy. So uh, that's the criteria um, that that really kind of had Tony stand out. It's great to hear our process as well. And um, embedded within all of this, Sam Lewis, I'll come across to you. Of course, he's got a host of tournaments that he'll be responsible for guiding the Matildas through. He's got the Women's World Cup, of course, which we know, but he's got the Asian Cup. We're also hoping that the Tokyo 2020 Olympics that have been postponed continue to go ahead next year as well. So he'll have ample opportunity to get a look at this team, to work with this team, to think about a succession plan, of course, because we know that although we're in this period of a golden generation of players, we still have a lot of players that by the time we get to 2023 will be towards the back end of their careers given their ages. But can you tell us from your perspective, did the right person get the job? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sarah, I think, ticked all of those boxes when she listed them there. Tony has experience across every single area that we need a head coach to have experience in. And the thing that I really liked about what James Johnson said about uh, Tony not needing or not having not needing training wheels is that because we do have this series of consecutive tournaments over the next four years, we need to have someone who can hit the ground running. And he has proven through his CV that he knows what these big tournaments are like. He knows how to handle senior players in those environments. He knows how to develop young players in order to get them to become familiar with those environments. Um, and he, I mean, the, the thing that sort of impressed me most, I think, about the press conference last night was that he he seems to just have this really positive, enthusiastic, inclusive energy to him, something that I feel like everybody, when he was announced, sort of just got swept up in. And that's so refreshing. Um, it's so nice to have so much optimism uh, in Australian football, uh, which is something that has been sorely lacking, I think, in the last couple of years and particularly in the last couple of months. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think of all the sort of the, the sort of top four candidates that were being bandied about, it feels to me as if Tony ticks the vast majority of the boxes that were required. I think that there are probably a couple of people who are disappointed that uh, an Australian wasn't picked or that a, a woman wasn't picked, given our bid's emphasis on gender equality, for example. But I think given our current circumstances and our current context um, and the team that we have and the things that we have coming up, Tony seems to be the, the perfect fit. You mentioned the press conference there, Solich. If you wouldn't mind, let's roll a clip to hear exactly what uh, Tony Gustafson hopes to bring to the role. You've had some huge moments in the Olympic Games, in World Cups, as an assistant coach. Now got the head coach job. What is it that you're going to bring to this Matildas team? The first thing that comes to mind is passion. I'm a very passionate person, a passionate coach. Um, and I think I share that passion with a lot of people in the Federation uh, and the players that want to create a a legacy that is bigger than winning. Winning is a natural, you always want to win. Mm. I, I'm a winner, I love to win things, uh, but it's also winning is a part of something bigger, a bigger legacy. Uh, and I hope I'll bring that passion. Um, I also think from the experience of being in, in big time moments and being in that pressure cooker, every team can win when they play good. But it also means you have to find a way to win when you're not playing good. And that game management piece and the tactical piece and the belief I do think I have a unique experience there and I hope I can, can put that belief and that game management into the Matildas. Mm, some really interesting points that he makes there, Walsh. I want to come back to you on this where he talks about needing to improve our game management style. When you sort of went through the selection criteria of what you were looking for and the qualities that you wanted the incumbent coach to have, I mean, experience is something that Gustafsson obviously has in spades and that's something that given the, 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 the host of incredibly important tournaments that we have coming up for us were going to be a priority. But what were some areas that you identified that you felt like you really wanted to focus on in order to take the Matildas game to the next level. Yeah, thanks, Lucy. Um, there were a couple of different areas, and I, and I probably won't go too deep into the technical discussions we had because they're probably questions for Tony. Um, and I think at, at a time you'll start to see that come out through the Matildas. But um, there were a couple of things that really shone through, and I and I and I touched on it before around uh, through that analysis that that we did. The Matildas we've really relied heavily on this eleven core players. Um, and through the analysis, we realised that, uh, you know, from 2017, we've only had eight debutantes. We really need to, to broaden our, our squad depth. He had a, a deep knowledge and understanding of, of what it takes to be able to look outside these, these core players. And he left us with a lot of confidence, um, not only from his, um, his experience um, in terms of the players that I touched on earlier from the US national team, it was more around his ideas on how on, on how to, I guess, first identify those players and then nurture, support those players to be able to get them to a level um, that we need to, to to build greater competition. Um, I don't think he'll mind me saying, but he, he had uh, everything he talked about was 23. It's obviously quite fitting around the Women's World Cup in 2023. But, uh, you know, this inclusive management style that he has around, it takes 23 Anyone that's been to a World Cup and anyone that's, that's been successful at one knows that it takes 23 players. And he had a deep understanding of the psyche, um, I guess the, the, the motivation um, around trying to uh, include those 23 players um, throughout the next four years and beyond. You know, he had a squad of, talked about a squad of 50. 
it is so important for success. Um, but I think in terms of on the pitch, he, he alluded to a couple of conversations around um, his deep understanding around the international game and nuances there, the speed of play, um, how games are won and lost through in, in the box at each end. Um, and he went into greater detail in those areas. And he is a guy that, uh, that uses a significant amount of data to make decisions. Um, however, I think it, it shone through the press conference where he, he talks about a team, a broader team. Um, and that that really came through around he will need the support of um, coaches here on the ground, Australian coaches, a broader Australian high performance team. Um, he's got a, a significant level of awareness um, and ability to be able to understand where his expertise starts and, and where he needs to lean on others for theirs. So um, I think he just ticks so many boxes, but uh, he, he left us with a serious amount of confidence around his tactical technical now and how we can take this team from being number seven to one. And we're hoping that that's a realistic achievement. I'm going to bounce over to Stolich in a second to take the floor uh, for some questions. But um, another question from me for you while she's around um, the, the types of discussions you might have or might not have had with Gustafsson around his playing style and philosophy. Did you get down to that? Um, did you get a sense of what he's hoping to bring in terms of tactics, etc.? Yeah, we did. Again, I think they're probably questions for him. I'd love for him to be able to answer that firsthand um, with, with yourself when, when we finally get to doing that. Um, but uh, he had a deep knowledge of Australia. He had a deep knowledge of our strengths um, and our development areas. And um, he felt quite strongly about, um, and, and I think he, he reiterated this throughout the, the, the press conference, that he probably wouldn't have taken this job if, if he didn't realise or really truly believe that this team can actually win a World Cup. Um, and he talked to the how, how he would get there. And that was brought out through his, his football philosophy. So I won't go into the detail of it, but he's obviously had uh, first-hand experience playing Australia, uh, but being on the, on the bench of the US team. And uh, he did say that um, of all the teams in the world that, um, you know, we are one of those teams that understand and have the capabilities to beat the US. And I think that IP that he brings um, from the best team in the world will um, absolutely help this team uh, drive forward. So uh, it's it's very exciting. Stolich, over to you for some questions. Oh, you're on mute, mate. Uh, apologies there. I muted myself because I didn't want to interrupt these great answers that Sarah was giving us. But, uh, yeah, I was just saying it is very exciting, um, you know, and, and like uh, echoing what everyone's saying, he spoke very well. Um, I liked how he talked about his philosophy of you can get one day older or you can get one day better. And, and you know, in players that he's worked with in the past are always looking to get one day better. And that's what he specifically likes about working in the women's game, that they're so determined to improve every single day. So and I think the Matildas, you know, from everything we hear, that this group has that attitude. So that's great. And that was one of the reasons that he came across. But, uh, Sarah, one question uh, that I had to you is, obviously the goal is to win the World Cup 2023 on home soil. 
But before that, we'll have the Olympics in 2021. What are the expectations around the Olympics? What will be a kind of signpost for us, the fans, the media, to look at and say how we're tracking when it comes? Is it, you know, gold medal, silver, bronze? You know, he's going to have a bit of a hampered um, kind of preparation for that, obviously, with COVID and everything that we have in the world. But what can we look for, you know, as an early sign of success in 2021? I think um, more broadly, we have four opportunities over the next four years. Uh, obviously, the pinnacle being the, the Women's World Cup that we'd love to win on home soil. So that's that's a given. Um, I think that um, it's obviously quite difficult with COVID. Um, we're looking to have a, a camp in November um, and hopefully some matches early next year. So I think that um, there's a couple of challenges we need to get around the Olympics and, and some work to be done around planning for that. Um, but look, I think that it's fair to say from from uh, the words that uh, that come out of his mouth, he's he's a winner. Um, he'll obviously want to win uh, each competition that we enter to into. And um, look, I, I think that more broadly, uh, in terms of building squad depth, I think there'll be some um, decisions that need to be made around that in terms of uh, getting new players in around. But uh, I think we have to, at this stage, um, take it step by step leading up to the World Cup. And I think um, the planning is still yet to be determined around how we build up to that um, and what that looks like in a, in a COVID and post-COVID world. So um, we, as a federation, will do everything that we can to make sure that he has everything he needs. Um, and that includes having, uh, in this, this early period, coaches here on the ground. Uh, we obviously have Ray Dower at the moment who has a finger on the pulse around the pathways here and the talent uh, that sits outside that, that squad of 23, which will be crucial for us leading up to 2023. Hmm. Uh, Sam Lewis, I want to bounce over to you with this question. How much pressure will be on Tony Gustafsson, both within the women's football community, the broader football community, and also the broader Australian public when it comes to the big dance in 2023? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it will it will increase um, as the tournaments roll on. I think given the context of COVID, there's perhaps not going to be a huge amount of pressure on him to perform in Tokyo. Um, again, because of the hugely disrupted preparation period, he's really only going to have about six months with the team before he takes them there uh, because he's, of course, contracted with his current men's club in Sweden until the end of this year. So he's really only going to have six months with the team, which is the same amount of time really that Ante Milicic had with the Matildas before they went to France. So I think perhaps uh, comparing it to that, expectations will be maybe similar, maybe a little bit lower given everything that's happened. But perhaps based on those performances, I think we'll, we'll then start to, I think, feel a bit more pressure um, on Tony. And one of the things that I really liked about his press conference was he said that he relishes pressure uh, he performs really well under pressure. He likes pressure. And one of the things that he wants to instill in the players is to not be afraid of pressure, to lean into it and to use it to fuel them. And so I think that that's a really promising sort of first step um, for someone in a position like his because the ultimate pressure is going to be 2023. It's a World Cup on home soil. 
our team, our Matildas are going to be at the peak, a lot of them at the peak of their careers. We've got one of the best strikers on the planet. Uh, we're going to be expected to do well, especially off the back of our performances in 2019. So I think if the Matildas now are going to start being embedded into this idea that pressure is good, to not shy away from it, to embrace it and to try and use it to fuel them, um, it'll make, I think, the, the sort of the larger process of this four-year tenure of Tony's much more uh, positive for them and much more positive for us. I don't think it means that we can't be critical, we can't ask questions, but I think it means that the, the dynamic is going to be different. And I think as Australians, we all want to see the Matildas do well. We all adore them. Um, the, the, the Women's World Cup is going to be perhaps one of the only opportunities outside of an Olympic Games where the wider sport community starts to pay attention to this team. Um, but I think if Tony is able to address those with the, with the players in a sort of psychological, emotional way and start to lay down those foundations of confidence now, I think they'll be geared towards success um, come 2023. Mm. Um, another question for you on this, Walshy. Uh, I guess it'd be interesting to know just how much consultation you had with the playing group um, with respects to the appointment. Did you canvas the idea of potentially putting Gustafsson in the job with them beforehand or was this something that everyone at the, the board level kind of made exclusively and separate to the team? Yeah, Thanks, Lucy. I, it's, it's a good question. The, the players was, were most definitely consulted throughout the process. However, candidates were never discussed with the players. Um, that's obviously the, the, the role of board and management to, to, to build out criteria. However, I think um, they were absolutely crucial in terms of developing the criteria and the attributes that, um, that they thought that they needed. They're obviously a very key um, expert in terms of building out that criteria. Um, so I think that's basically where um, their role started and ended within the process. The question that we're asking, by the way, welcome to all of you tuning in today. It's great to have your company. If you are just joining us, we're discussing the appointment of Tony Gustafsson. I believe that the World Game put up a, a story yesterday saying how sweet it is, which we're all kind of in agreement with knowing that he's a, obviously a Swede, but also how sweet it is to be in a situation where we've been able to attract a candidate of his credentials. Um, Walshie, I also have to ask you, um, going forward as well, how will Football Federation Australia uh, measure his success? internally yeah it's it's a good question I think it's it's a very easy one to answer and you, you basically go back to the criteria which is around you know performance technical tactical um, culture and how we leave a legacy uh, at the end of his tenure so um, we talked about obviously the women's World Cup uh, in relation to performance uh, we want to win that um, there'd be nothing bigger and obviously the 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 performance indicators are actually all quite interrelated because if we are going to leave a legacy, um, not only for women and girls in Australia here through the World Cup and, and delivering this big event, Matilda's, I believe, and the Federation believes, will be the vehicle to do that. I think that uh, the last couple of years we've seen that uh, there really have been the shining light and, and something we're all quite proud of uh, within the game. Everyone feels a part of it. Um, and obviously last night you could sense that the football community could relate and, and, and have a feeling that they'll be able to engage with Tony, which I think will be important. So um, they're the three key pieces. The, the way that the, the team is, is managed is, is equally as important, but uh, ultimately we want to lift this trophy in 2023 
and by doing so we'll have more female coaches at the at the grassroots we'll have more female referees more female administrators and uh, we'll have greater infrastructure for the game more investment into the game um it is really just a great thing for our game and i, I think we needed it we certainly did stolich um over to you uh, for a couple of more questions for each of our guests before we say goodbye yeah, uh, Sarah, I wanted to know, um, kind of famously when uh, Gus Hiddink took over the Socceroos back in 2005, he brought his own assistant in uh, Nishkins, but then also Graham Arnold was given kind of a second assistant role as well to to learn and soak up knowledge. Will there be an Australian who's also on the coaching staff to have a similar role, soak up that knowledge, and then maybe be, you know, in a position to... Um, take over after the world cup you know ideally it'd be great for us to have an aussie and a female coach as well ready to take over in 2024 yeah that's absolutely the plan um tony and even throughout the process was very clear on uh, linking to the the legacy piece in in making sure that um he's built a team around him that that can take over uh, beyond his tenure so that's very important but uh, like any coach, I think, um, you know, in terms of aligning to success, I think that it's very important that they have someone that, that they've worked with and trusted previously because ultimately that's, that's usually the, the recipe to, to success. So Tony will be bringing an assistant coach with him. Um, it's yet to, to be determined who that is. However, yes, we will be having a, a third assistant coach um, that will be integrated equally into that that top three Um uh, so, yes, that has been determined. And what about over to you, Sam, on this particular subject? We've heard a lot um, of the terms legacy thrown around in all of this and we hope that, you know, particularly after securing the rights to host in conjunction with New Zealand in 2023, that we are able to capitalise on this for the women's game and the broader game in general going forward. But I just want to know what's going to be different this time around versus when the women's team won the Asian Cup versus when the men's team won the Asian Cup. How can we look to capitalise on the success of the game after such exciting times in Australian football? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the great strengths of our bid was that there was this emphasis on legacy and about the role that football can play more generally. Um, a lot of the bits and pieces that perhaps not a lot of people paid attention to in our bid was that part of hosting the Women's World Cup includes organising um, sort of, you know, not not camps, but sort of meetings and leadership summits and lots of sort of um, development and um, sort of training kinds of things for women in football. So it's not just that we're going to be hosting a really great tournament on Australia New Zealand soil and we're going to see some of the best players playing some of the best football, but it's that there's so much happening peripherally around that tournament as well that is going to play a huge part in setting that legacy. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about Tony's appointment is that he 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 wants that to he like he wants to be part of that. He wants to he fully embraces his responsibility in that sense. Um, the fact that he is open and willing and able to surround himself with the people who are going to be taking over from him in the future is a really positive sign. It shows that he's really collaborative and he's really inclusive. Um, I do. My theory is that there is going to be a female Australian coach who takes over from him after 2024 when his contract runs out. 
And I think that's the natural progression. Um, at the moment, I don't feel like Australia's coaching pathways has has quite developed the kind of coach you could have taken over the team at this particular stage. But I think by the end of this tenure, off the back of hosting the biggest tournament on the planet, we will definitely have all of the foundations and all of the structures in place to allow more women to springboard off into those kinds of areas. So we're not just going to see so many more women and girls taking up the game and boys and men as well, but we're going to see so many women being involved in the sport in other ways, hopefully including in the media. Um, this is another big, uh, another big change that we've seen since the Matildas did win the 2010 Asian Cup is that no one really cared. No one really knew about it. Um, you know, that sort of got increasingly uh, better in 2015 when the Socceroos were involved because, of course, it was men. But the big thing that's happened in the last sort of four to five years is that particularly as a result of more media coverage, women's football is starting to get more traction and more people are starting to care because we're starting to tell the stories of the women who are involved. And so I think hosting the Women's World Cup provides a really uh, fruitful and vibrant storytelling platform in that way as well so that we can not just sell the story of the current generation of Matildas but also the future generations of Matildas who are going to come through. So it's just like it's just the best like this whole I'm just buzzing this whole thing is just amazing um, it's going to completely change the sport not just for women and girls but all of football in Australia and I'm so excited that we have someone as capable and as energetic and enthusiastic and uh, I guess sort of just optimistic as Tony to be able to lead them there. Mm. Sam, before we let you go and while we've still got you here, I think it's an opportune time to be able to ask you if you've received any mail or heard any intelligence around the upcoming W League season uh, because there's still so much uncertainty around what we can expect when it comes to that side of things. Yeah, so uh, by all intents, for all intents and purposes, the W League will be starting next year. Um, the the biggest reason that there has been such little uh, decision making happening around it is largely to do with COVID. Um, FFA effectively can't afford to do another hub. Uh, the A-League hub was really expensive and it took a, a really big toll on the players. And when it comes to the W-League, um, circumstances for, for female players in Australia are quite different. They're, the vast majority of them are, are semi-professional. A lot of them have other jobs and families and uh, other responsibilities that means that they can't necessarily relocate to a Sydney hub or a Melbourne hub or wherever if that's what they wanted to do. So because of that, the, the FFA have had to wait um, to get more clarity on borders and travel restrictions and quarantine rules uh, before they can start to make some actual decisions. And again, I know that there's been a lot of um, discussion about uh, CBAs and other sorts of uh, nitty gritty things to do with the PFA um, and clubs. That all has, I mean, it's all really tangled up in each other in that way. So I think that's, that's largely the reason why it's been, uh, taking a while for decisions to be made. But I think, um, what I'm hearing is that within the next couple of weeks, we'll have a little bit more clarity, um, about sort of general timings of, of when the league's going to be, what it's going to look like, um, and sort of so that people can start to get interested. Cause we're already seeing clubs announcing signings, you know, they're all sort of taking the initiative themselves. Um, but, yeah, so I think that even though we've had this huge delay, hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll have a bit more clarity. Fingers crossed. One more question to you, Walsh, before we say goodbye. When can we get our appropriately socially distanced hands on Tony Gustafson? When can we actually get him on the show? When can we sit down with him one-on-one -on -one to talk tactics and talk about things that he's going to bring to the role in more depth? 
I'm sure we can organise that shortly. He's, uh, he's pretty great on Zoom. He's, he's had some very, very late nights over the last month or so, but uh, he seems to be a night owl. There hasn't been a, a time where he didn't turn up without that um, uh, enthusiasm that's quite infectious. So um, I think we can manage that for you, Lucy. Oh, that'll be fantastic. Walshy, so great to see you. Sam Lewis, so great to see you. I want to congratulate you also, uh, Walshy, on a, on a great job that Football Federation Australia have done here. It's obviously been a very extensive process that you've gone through, but it's very clear to all of us here within the football community that the right person was selected for the job. We're looking so forward to seeing what Tony can bring to the role. So I want to say well done to you guys at FFAHQ on a job well done. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. And also to you, Sam Lewis, one of our big fans here at the World Game. Always a pleasure to see you, our friend. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's fantastic to have your contributions. And when we get more clarity around the W League and women's football more broadly going forward, we'd love to have you back on to talk that and dissect what's coming up for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Again, super chill, super pumped. I'm just like, everyone get on side now. Like this is this is happening. Women's football is central. It's so crucial to the future of the game. Everybody get excited because like it's happening. Oh, guess what? We're on side already. Bloody hell. <laughs> then they need to get the memo and get on board. So well done to you, Sam Lewis. Great stuff and good to chat to you as always. Take care. Yes, it's always appropriate to chat to some leading females in that space, Nick Stoll. They're doing fabulous things, respectively, in the women's game. But it's time now to shift gears and welcome another friend of ours here on the World Game Live. He's fantastic in all the work that he does, in particular contributing to some of the best bits of journalism that we see come out on football at the moment. And that's none other than Sydney Morning Herald journalist Vince Rugardi. Vincenzo, great to see you. How are you? Respect. What's going on? How are you? <laughs> There's a lot going on, and I want to ask you now, what was your reaction to the news that Tony Gustafson has been appointed as the Matildas coach on a four-year deal? Uh, I think I was pretty happy. Um, he seems like the right guy for the job. Um, international experience, uh, new blood. He's, he's not Australian. He's not a woman, which is, you know, negatives for a lot of people as far as they're concerned. That's the dream. But until then, um, he seems like a, like a pretty switched-on character. got to say, I don't... Like a lot of people, I think, don't know an awful lot about him aside from what you, what you read on his Wikipedia page and what you've heard from, uh, I guess, his time with the US women's national team. Um, now we wait, but all the people who have been through the process and dealt with him very closely seem to be quite confident that he's the right guy for the job. Um, I would have liked to have seen someone like his, Liz, uh, Jill Ellis, sorry, um, but I'm guessing she priced herself out. And this is, um, my assumption is Jill has given her a pretty big, um, given Tony, sorry, a pretty big, uh, you know, endorsement throughout. So um, we wait and see, but the, the signs are pretty positive, I reckon. And, uh, and everyone who came before me just now on the show, Sarah and Sam summed it up pretty well. Mm. Um, Stolich, I'll come to you with this one. Of course, there were some questions and quite a few of them leading up to the announcement um, surrounding just who the person would be. I know that some candidates bandied about were to the extent of Jill Ellis. Uh, Joe Montemura, we also know, was bandied about and a couple of others in there. But what was your overall reaction to the news as well? I think it's really good. I mean, if you look at it, there's a, there's a few things in there. It seems like they've got the right candidate in terms of international experience. You know, he's been there at World Cups, been there at Olympics. You know, yeah, like he's bringing the right energy, tactical now. So that, that all seems good. But also the fact that they've given him a four-year deal. It seems like they really are planning for the future. So that's a positive sign. This isn't going to be one of those things where they're a bit unsure. That can even undermine the coach. 
So the players are going to know that this coach is here to stay. So there shouldn't be too much infighting. There should be a lot of, you know, authority that he has. So overall, I think it's really good. And I think, you know, it shows in Australian football. We talk about, you know, uh, the positivity and negativity of Australian football. When there are good things happening, there is usually a positive response. When we won the Women's World Cup, that was a very positive response. You know, I think if we want to see more positive responses from the public, from the media, maybe we need some more positive things happening. And then that's kind of the end result. So anyway, just my little thoughts there. Hey, yeah, just quickly though, it hasn't even been 24 hours yet since he was appointed. So it's early days is all I'm saying. It's Australian football, true. baby. You never know what's around the corner. We're just going yeah, we'll, to like that. We'll wait for soccer Twitter to weigh in on it. Damien Boynton, good afternoon to you, Damien. Great to have your company here on our World Game Live show via Facebook. A very smart move, he says, with respect to the appointment. Um, has been the best for so long with respect to the US Women's National Team. He's been there before and knows the inside working. Strong confidence in his potential to get the most out of the team. Publicly in the international football community, we're gaining more respect with a new appointment seen as very smart. Go Matildas. Couldn't agree more. Overwhelmingly, the positive responses to this have been great. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of people saying that it's the right move going forward, that now to have some stability, to have a four-year term, to have someone that knows the, you know, the inner machinations of what goes on at international football, but also at club-level football. I mean, this is someone that's that's been able to, to kind of bring a whole host of experience to the table here. Vincenzo, it's been a crazy old time in Australian football the last few weeks. My goodness, the game does not rest, but it's nothing to do with what's going on on the field. It's more to do with what's happening off the pitch. Please give us your thoughts. Weigh in on what your view has been of the debacle that's been going on between the clubs uh, and also the PFA with respect to the collective bargaining agreement dispute. Yeah, it hasn't been pretty. Um, I've sort of deliberately tried to extract my head from the mess for a little while, to be honest. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have had a couple other things uh, to focus on from a re reporting perspective, one of which we'll, we'll speak about shortly, no doubt, but it's been quite unedifying. Um, uh, at the, at person, just uh, unrelated, I can't get the US debate out of my head right now. Uh, I watched that earlier, Biden-Trump. Um, <laughs> we all, there's, we there's all element, right? But, like, yeah, I know, it's messed up, right? But, like, just... You, you almost get a similar vibe sometimes with Australian football. It's like, we're all fighting. Who knows the answer, really? Just, I don't know, just sort it out. Just, like, keep bickering, whatever. Whatever happens, I'm sure, at the end of this CBA situation or whatever we're dealing with at the moment, we're going to come out the other end. And at some point in the near future, no one knows when, but they're going to schedule a season. And on the day of the first match, the referee's going to blow his whistle and there's going to be football. I can't wait till that comes. You know I'm what I mean? Argue about VAR and handball. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. But it's a bit of just a, it's a mess, and I'm sure it will resolve itself. Um, but in the meantime, um, everyone's sort of giving each other a couple of black eyes. People are bringing other rival entities in the game, whatever they may be, down, um, and it's ugly. But we can be ugly sometimes. You just got to roll with the punches. I'm waiting for us to become beautiful, though. I'm waiting for us to blossom. You will be waiting for a long time, Lucy. That's the problem. That's the problem. And I think with comments that Stolich made about there being so much negativity, and I know that we here at SBS have been accused of being uber negative recently, but I'll echo, you know, Stolich's sentiments there and say, well, give us something to be positive about. Beyond our 1.9 million participation rate, as well as the Women's World Cup bid uh, that we've secured for 2023. What else do we have to be positive about in Australian football? You've got rogue owners coming out and making their own decisions when they're all supposed to be unified. 
You've got a federation that's entirely washed their hands of it saying, well, this is a part of the unbundling process. We don't want anything to do with this. The clubs want to control. Take your power and run with it. But we've seen that they haven't been able to do it. Stolich, I mean, it, it's just been effectively one big mess that we're all continuing to try and make sense of on the hop, unfortunately. But where are we at now? Have things simmered down somewhat, do you feel? Uh, yeah, it seems like people are making their decisions. They're either choosing to go overseas, whether it be to, you know, India or, the, you know, Greece or wherever they can get a contract and probably we'll see a few more players leave. And I think that's a shame because there's, there's high quality players leaving the league, but that does naturally happen. And then the other players are re-signing with their clubs. And, you know, you've got the likes of Andrew Naboo going to Melbourne City. And, you know, it was interesting ever since Tony Sage wrote that letter where he said the A-League owners are the only ones willing to put money in the game. I think we've already had almost changes of ownerships at the Mariners, at the Jets, uh, you know, Perth Glory, That there's talk about it there. I hope so. I think it's necessary for that to happen now, like a change of ownership. But anyway, so, you know, it does show that there is money to come into the game. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, right now it's not the best time. Off-season isn't usually the best, but players are under pressure. You know, coaches would be under pressure. CEOs would be under pressure. Uh, but, yeah, it's... Um, there are some positives, which is hopefully this new investment coming in, and hopefully that delivers kind of even better results. But let's see. And can I just add two quick things on on the on the mess we find ourselves in? Just 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 Please. stray observations a little bit. Just one is just um, we and particularly us three, right? We're all obsessed with what happens here in Australian football. This is our lives, right? But just it's worth remembering what's happening in football around the world, not just because of COVID, but all of the time. Like, um, for instance, in England, so many of their clubs uh, below the Premier League Championship are battling big time. They're facing huge financial problems. Clubs are dying. It's terrible. Remember, uh, and this is this might sound completely random, but like remember last year in Greece, we're talking about all these Aussie players going to Greece right now, going to Zanthi FC, which is a great little project. But remember, there was an owner of a club in Greece who ran onto the field with a gun in a, in a holster. But my point yeah. is that crazy <laughs> stuff happens in football generally uh-huh. right and we, it, sometimes it feels like we've got a monopoly on it but i don't necessarily mm. think that's right i think it's just almost part of what football is and yes it's unedifying sometimes and it's exhausting and we just want to be at the other end of the rainbow but it is what it is and you've just got to take the good with the bad sometimes and and um the second thing again is related to that um talking about beauty and ugliness lucy I, i'm reminded of the famous quote from the independent former MP, Rob Oakeshott, I think, who said <laughs> that Australian politics was beautiful in its ugliness, which is kind of the way I think about Australian football sometimes. It's ugly as hell, but it's beautiful, and I probably really wouldn't want to be involved in any other game. But it's our ugly ogre. That's the point, you know. I Exactly. Think- months ago saying we need to start respecting the A-League, we need to start loving it that little bit more rather than turning our Euro snob noses up at it because it's our only elite competition that we have. If we continue to shun that, then what hope in hell do we have? If you're only going to barrack for teams in Europe, a la myself like a Liverpool or a Borussia Dortmund or a Barcelona, whoever it may be, um, then, then go and move to Spain, go and move to England. But I feel like we need to start treating our own with a bit more love, care and respect. But we touched on, um, you know, the uncertainty 
uncertainty, of course, that continues to grow around these disputes. But we know that um, uh, the PFA have actually come out and said that a couple of clubs are named Sydney FC as one of them, have really negotiated in good faith with their players. I know that Western Sydney Wanderers have managed to re-sign the majority of their core squad. Um, so they they are seeming to make some positive inroads with respect to dealing with the players and negotiating contracts individually. But Stolich, you touched on um, the ownership uh, structures and the changes there. I want to move over to that now more specifically. Vince, it'd be good to hear from you um, with respect to Central Coast in particular, who have struck an in-principle deal with a Sydney businessman. And likewise for Newcastle, there's been a Chinese-linked investment on the cusp of buying the Jets. Um, and that's a story that's also come out by your colleague, Don Bossy, who we tried to get on the show today, but he's a busy man. He'd love to, but he couldn't because he's also penned some fantastic articles, but being of the same publication within... Not that you're a second choice, Vince. We wanted both of you on, actually. We thought, what a great time to get the the, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, duo together. (laughs) Um, But tell us um, your reaction to hearing about these ownership changes, potentially. Yeah, um, I'd love to give you a little bit more insight, but I can't because Dom, the Dom stories, great stories that he's broken there about the, the new prospective owners of both of those clubs. And I have to say, I don't know anything more than what he's reported. And in the case of Sky J Capital, we know next to basically nothing, um, which is, I mean, let's be, like, it's a pretty murky world, the, the world of club ownership. There's a lot of, you know, skullduggery and, 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 and smoke and mirrors sometimes, I think you'll, you'll find, especially in the A-League. Um, I have absolutely no idea outside of what's been reported about either one of these two ownership groups. I guess the only thing you can hope for is that um, they're vetted appropriately by the powers that be, whoever they are, um, which which is a pretty interesting question because I think previously it would be the FFA who would vet them um, and decide whether that, you know, the new owner of Club X is a fit and proper person or whatever the test is. Um, I suppose you could you could raise some questions about the way that's been navigated in the past with some of our current owners, that's for sure. Um, I don't know who's going to be running that process now. Is it going to be the clubs themselves? Um, is it going to be FFA? Is it going to be a bit of both? Um, ideally, it should be a you know a bit of both because um, like if it's FFA, is it still FFA? I'm pretty sure I'm of the understanding that it is because all of these sales have to still go through Football Federation Australia. They can't get. The- without their approval and and my understanding also is, is that it's really up to them how much they charge for the licenses as it stands happy to be corrected if i'm wrong by um ffa hq but that is what i know to be true at this point in time is that they're allowed to dictate how much they collect for the sale of the club and also going forward once we're fully separated from the from the governing body they'll also be able to claim a percentage on the sale of any future clubs yeah, right. Oh, you might be entirely right there, Lucy. It's a little bit hard sometimes to figure out what's going on with the A-League because we're stuck in this unbundling purgatory where you actually, you know, who's running the show? It should be a pretty simple question, but I actually couldn't answer that for you today. I don't really know. It's quite complicated and that sort of, sort of tells you everything you need to know about the A-League. But um, I, I hope the clubs, if they are involved, don't get the final decision or, on any of this sort of stuff, nor should they going forward because... Um, it's in there, like, for instance, if you're Mike Charlesworth, it's in your interest to sell the club at a price you want to some dude who's offering that price. Yeah. It's not really up to you, you know, it's not you really your concern if he's the right person to run the club. So mm-hmm. I hope there's oversight there going forward, um, mm-hmm. that's for sure. But, yeah, yeah just where uh, it, it's a mess. Again, what can you say? Mm-hmm. 
Well, the question that we're posing to all of the fans today, it's been so great to see so much commentary and engagement, guys. Keep your questions and your comments coming, particularly while we've got Vince here on the show with us. But the question we're asking is, do you think this will help or hinder the league? Stolich, over to you to answer that one. Well, it's hard to know. I mean, you'd hope that, uh, you know, the potential new owners of the Mariners could improve that team because they've been a bit of a disaster for the last five years. Um, but, yeah, I think we don't know. We don't know anything about these uh, owners. We know a lot of times they're interested in property and, you know, they're not the first ones to get involved in an A-League club because of property uh, reasons. It's 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 a incentive for a lot of uh, potential owners to get involved. Um, and, you know, in the case of uh, Perth, I think um, there's Tony Sage is not looking to sell the club as much as he's looking to get another investor in the club, but he still is adamant that he wants to get, you know, 51% at least. So he has the kind of control on that. I understand why potential investors might be hesitant to give the money and then let Tony Sage be the one in control. I'm just saying... If I was an investor, I'd go, Perth Grove sounds good, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, wait, he's still in charge. Mm, I'm going to hold on to my money for now. So that's that's what I see. But, yeah, again, I see a lot of discussion around this and, you know, I, I see people very protective of their owners, which I think is, is very interesting. I mean, to me, it's like I support a club. I don't support an owner. And, you know, as you see, there are, as Vince was saying, there's bad owners all over the shop. I mean, the Glazers at Manchester United, disaster, right? It doesn't matter how big your club is or how established your football nation is. There are always going to be some questionable characters and questionable owners around the place. But, yeah, hopefully we do see uh, improvements at Central Coast. At Newcastle, they've been really calling out for investment for a while there, kind of like the last maybe year or two. They really haven't had that. So it would be nice to see. So you can only hope that it will help the league. But of course, you know, yes, like you're saying, these people need to be vetted by FFA. And, you know, you'd like to see that if they're coming into a closed league, I'd be very interested to know what they're being told about promotion and relegation. Because if I was going to buy the Mariners, I'd want to know that I'm guaranteed to stay in the A-League for a few years. And I wonder what they're being told around that. That would be kind of my first question to the new owners. Also, Mm -hmm. I'd like to see a community model, which I know is still being talked about on the Central Coast. I would like to see that happen. So if you're involved with that, send me the link. I'll start sharing it. Let's get the fans owning the club. I'll invest in any A-League club if the fans own it. Uh, Here's what we know, the intel that came via Dominic Bossy, great uh, reporter and, of course, a colleague of Vince's over at the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, He's a Sydney-based investor, goes by the name of Abdul Halu. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, And he's already come out and said he's reached a sale agreement in principle with Mariners Chairman Mike Charlesworth for the club and its associated property. As revealed by the Herald on August 6th, Halu had signalled an interest in the club and is now on the cusp of purchasing its A-leg licence as well as the commercial real estate in Tug owned by Childworth. A deal won't be finalised until it is approved by Football Federation Australia. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where the cards fall on that one. I know that a host of um, owners and, and people outside of um, Australian football have been looking to invest in the A-League and potentially sniffing around those prospective licences uh, when it comes to the Jets, also Perth Glory, and namely now Central Coast Mariners. Um, but there's a lot of changes to come in all of this. We asked Sam Lewis, Vince, the question of what we know about the W League, but do we know any any more intel on when we could potentially see the W League, uh, sorry, the, the A League resuming? Uh, no, uh, short answer. Um, we're all at the mercy of this, uh, this stupid virus, I guess. Um, it looks like at some point, you know, in January, they can't leave it too much later than that, um, I guess, because, you know, I think the Fox deal end, ends in June, so it's going to have to be a, 
a, a pretty quick season wrapped up for the sort of back end of the year. So uh, we've got to give ourselves a decent runway to get that done. Um, it's really interesting, though, the W League. I've started asking a couple of questions around that as well. And um, I, I caught what Sam said as well. Like, um, FFA doesn't want to do another hub that's so expensive. We, I don't even think we could afford to do a hub for the A League, let alone the W League. But um, I guess it's it's also the protocols that um, players are going to have to abide by um, and, and the way they live their lives, I guess, um, in tandem with what we've seen in the A League uh, and, um, you know, the other sporting competitions that have continued this year. Like, even the players who are able to stay at their, you know, sleep in their own beds and stay at home, like happened with um, the two AFL clubs in Queensland and Sydney FC and the Wanderers and the other two New South Wales clubs, I'm guessing, during the during the recent A-League season. Like, they, they might get to stay at home and that, but they don't get to do everything a normal person would get to do. Like, they don't get to go to a coffee shop and sit down and have a coffee or go to a restaurant or do things like that. And it's interesting... Um, with the W League, those players are obviously going to be, um, you know, semi-pro in nature. And so they're going to need to, I guess, attend their jobs um, during the day before training or whatever. And so how do you marry that up with whatever health protocols need to be observed in in the running of a professional competition? It's, it's <laughs> no idea. I don't think anyone knows because it's, this is all new. Um, but it, it just gives you an insight into just how difficult it is I mean, you can't even say when the season's going to start right now. And, and we're, we don't even know. I couldn't tell you when I could travel to Melbourne next, you know. So when you're dealing with things of that magnitude, um, I guess you just got to just, just sit back and wait and hope for the best, really. Before we move on to the next topic, um, we've got a question coming in from one of our regular viewers and regular commenters, Justin Parker via Facebook. Good afternoon to you, Justin. Great to have your company, mate. Thanks for tuning in. Should we be concerned about the amount of players departing to India? Do we just grind out the next season or two and hope things go back to normal, or is this a change of the tides? Stolich, over to you on that. Uh, well, first, I just want to say Justin Parker has the best Facebook profile picture I think we've seen. I was going to say uh, that. What a head of hair, man. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. And Look then the jacket mate. as well. Oh, Very that, impressive, Justin. That's an impressive name. It's actually better than mine, Justin. I'm not going to lie. I'm even jealous of what's going on there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I do think we should be worried about uh, players going to India. I understand why they're going. You know, financially it, it's better. And I think we've got James Donachie going to Goa. I think Scott Neville's in talk to go to East Bengal. Uh, Dylan Fox also has been linked with a move uh, to India. So, you know, cash it's going to happen. Cash money. Yeah. But this is the thing, at least with, when they go to Europe, there's a thing of, okay, we're going to a higher standard league. They can develop as players. That's not really happening uh, when it comes to India, although I think the standard is improving there. We saw um, Roy Krishna go across there last season. He was like kind of the A-League's best player, went to India. David Williams as well uh, went across to there as well. It is a bit of a worry, but, I mean, what what can you do at the moment when the, when the clubs are asking you know, the players to take a salary cut, they're going to want to look for options overseas, whether that be in India. Now, previously, I think they would have shied away from India because they would have said, well, you know, it's such a big change in lifestyle. The the quality of football is not great there. But, you know, Eric Pardalou has been there for four or five years now and I think it. has really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, seems to love it, seems to be very successful there. So, yeah, it's it's happening. I understand why players are going and, and good luck to them. But, yeah, I would rather have higher-quality players stay in the A-League or, you know, inevitably move to Europe. 
What do you think about this mass exodus, Vince? Of course, we anticipated it. We've, of course, expected it given the current climate that we're in, no thanks to the pandemic. But, I mean, with respect to India as well, what are your thoughts around that? I mean, there's two things. Like, in addition to the security and the finances and all that, I'm pretty sure they've brought in a rule where every team has to have an Asian player. I, I think that's right. So, and that's new. So, no wonder they're going for Aussie players because we're relatively cheap, dependable, good professionals. Um, probably, you know, from a cultural perspective, um, maybe it's easier for an English-speaking person from Australia to come into an Indian club where I'm guessing a lot of the players will speak English versus maybe bringing in a player from Japan or Korea and paying over the odds maybe to bring them there. So that's that's another factor involved here. Um, yeah, I mean, you'd much rather have these guys in the league, I'm guessing, right? But um, A, we, we anticipated it. We know the TV deal's gone down. There's complete financial uncertainty across the board at the moment and 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 from that perspective I understand it but also I'm not I'm not losing it I'm not panicking about it because I mean look at the players we've lost and with the greatest of respect to them um like Jacob Trapp James Donerkey Joel Kianese um looks like Scott Neville was it Dylan Fox is the other one so I mean these are good solid players but these are not guys who people have paying for A-League memberships to see and paying for tickets to go to games and watch or subscriptions. These are good players. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the past five, six years, isn't there like a running joke on soccer Twitter whenever a player signs to a new club in the A-League, the wheels on the bus go round and round. We keep signing the same sort of players all the time. These guys are those sort of players um, with the greatest respect to them again. So I'm not fussed. Like, they can go and do that thing and then we can have a look in these difficult financial circumstances at what's coming through underneath. And people have been crying out for that for a long time. And it's not in the circumstances we'd want to see it. Um, but this is the world we live in right now. And this is the TV deal we've got. And these are the circumstances with the A-League. Hopefully things pick up over the next few years. They get a deal in place beyond this coming season. And maybe the finances pick up after that. Maybe they don't. Maybe we become a selling league, which is, again, what a lot of people have said we should be doing. So... I'm not too depressed about it. I'm eager to see what's out there in terms of the next level of players uh, in Australia. And I wish these guys the best of luck for basically um, latching onto a very secure opportunity in an environment where, you know, the A-League is anything but secure. Hmm, some interesting points you make there. Um, I want to move on to the next topic of conversation. And this is also a story that was penned by your colleague, once again, Don Bossy. It's clear that we can see where all of the football-related reports are coming from. You've just got to go to Vince and Dom to get it. And also the World Game, too. I'm not going to sell ourselves short either. <laughs> The headline came out and he'd spoken to James Johnson with respect to this and it's reportedly that the FFA are targeting a $40 million boost to the game with a crucial transfer overhaul. Now, it's interesting, and I'm sure you would have read this piece, Vincent. For those of you that haven't, I encourage you strongly to do so because it includes a host of commentary from Football Federation Australia Chief Executive James Johnson about all of this. The projected figure of $40 million, Vince, that's what seems to be kind of um, really a bit of a sticking point for me because when we talk about a transfer overhaul, I agree that we need to introduce a transfer system, but where is this projected figure of $40 million coming from in a climate where clubs are looking to reduce salaries? We're also potentially exploring the option of reducing the salary cap uh, entirely. Um, I just I don't know where a figure like that could come from in this current fiscal and, and fragile climate. Yeah, uh, it's it's 
it's a tough one. Like it's a, I think Dom wrote a potential $40 million boost. I think that's what FFA want to get out of it. But I think there's an understanding that we're not going to get $40 million in, in, into the game in, in, in year one. You know what I mean? Like it's not going to happen straight away. I think this is a gradual thing that we need to build towards eventually. And um, look, we've got to just get these changes happening and wait and see what it does to the game and how it works. Because relating to my, the last thing I just spoke about, giving kids the opportunity, well, we're not going to have kids to, like players to sell unless we're looking at basically all the talent that we've got in Australia. So bring the next ones through. But at the same time, we're not going to be able to sell them if we're giving them one-year contracts and we've got an environment where there's uncertainty around the future and all that sort of stuff. So or like everything else in Australian football, all of these things are connected into each other. And basically what we've got at the moment is a, is a complete tangle of, of this thing and we're trying to put it back together, I guess. And this is one of the main components in putting that back together. And um, hopefully it, it leads to a sort of $40 million boost per year eventually. I don't think that's going to happen straight away. Uh, you know, even in the medium term, forty million sounds like you know, like 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 a, like a big number, probably too big a number. Um, I don't know. We'll see, I guess. Um, but they've got to put a number out there somewhere. They've got to they've got to they've got to let people know. Okay, this is what we think the possibilities are for a transfer system. We think it could be worth this much. That's good. It's attractive headline. It's a good number to basically hold FFA to as well because they're saying this could be worth this much to the game. So. We'll wait and see, but it's contingent on player salaries, security, development, bringing through youth. Um, so it's not like we're just going to click our fingers and we're going to have a transfer system and rake in the cash. There's a lot of work that needs to be done under that under that for that to happen. Mm, I mean, the, the figure really kind of um, stumped me a little bit there, Stolich, like I said, and, and we did put in a request for James Johnson to join us on the show today. Unfortunately, he was unavailable, but it's something that we'd love to talk to him about because obviously there are a host of things going on in Australian football and it's a very busy time for both himself and, and all of the relevant stakeholders as we try to navigate through these very tricky waters. But um, I know that the transfer system is something, Stolich, that when James Johnson came into the role, he was very adamant that he wanted to introduce something like that into to our ecosystem. I agree with what Vince is saying. It's probably something that they're projecting for the long term. But in the short term, when you hear a figure like 40 million, immediately your mind is going to turn to, well, where the hell, like I said earlier, where the hell is that money coming from? What did you make of this story? Yeah, I mean, again, great idea. Uh, you know, we, we hear a lot of great ideas coming out of FFA uh, sometimes, but it's like, yeah, okay, how are we going to do it? And like you guys say, it's all connected. And I look at, you know, we talked about it last week on the show about how our crowds are very similar uh, levels to Portugal in terms of average attendance, right? Mm -hmm. But Portugal is actually a selling league. They sell, I mean, look at it right now. Ruben Diaz has gone to Man City from Benfica, 65 million. Uh, Fabio Silva went from Porto to Wolves, 440 million. They got it in one go, 40 million euros, I might add. We made $1.9 million uh, from international transfers last year. So that's the money's going to come from international. It's not going to come, I think, from domestic. So what I would hope would happen is if there is an internal transfer market that does encourage uh, teams to have longer 
um, contracts, which then keeps players there longer, which kind of stops that recycled league nature happening. You hold on to the player for, say, four years and you can sell them after two. It also encourages you to use younger players because they are more valuable. It's, you're a, you know, a potential player at 21 is much more valuable than a good player at 29. So that's what I hope there. But it's gonna have, we're going to have to play more games as well. This is another thing. If you're playing only 25, 26, 27 games in a league season, that's not enough for these young players to come through. That's not enough of minutes that these players are playing at to prove themselves, I think. So, again, yeah, it'd be great to have $40 million floating around Australian football. But to me, it's going to come from international transfers. And the way to do that is more games, more opportunities. And, you know, I think now is the time for these clubs to start investing in youth development because you see how valuable it is uh, overseas. And we do see it a little bit. We've seen uh, the Wanderers do it with their kind of – uh, what they've built out in Western Sydney, which is great. Although a lot of their players end up leaving before they end up making the first team. Sydney FC have improved. Some of their players have recently gone across. I think it was Ryan Teague uh, went to Portugal. I think they had another one go to Brighton. Um, so Sydney FC are improving in that. It's taken 15 years, but they are improving. Central Coast Mariners are even improving uh, some of their youth development, some of their youth sides. I think they all won their divisions in MPL2 recently. So they're improving. Good to see. But we need to see this really start to ramp up, and that's what I hope. And I hope the A-League clubs who right now are saying they don't have money, well, the best way to make money long-term is to sell these players overseas. And that's what happens in Portugal, for example. Comment coming through, and you're spot on with this, but I'll um, give you the intel to back it up. Khalil Kayal read the article, Lucy JJ, as in James Johnson, was never quoted as saying $40 million. Now, this I'll take directly from the article. The proposals and consultation process are aimed at achieving two targets, creating an internal domestic transfer economy and increasing Australia's international transfer revenue at least 15-fold. Last year, Australia was ranked just eighth in Asia in terms of transfer revenue received behind Iraq and the UAE. Australian clubs collected just US $1.9 million in international transfer fees last year, just 6% of the collective sum Japanese clubs received, which was US $29.4 million, and 7% of South Korea's outbound player sales, which was US $26.6 million. The A-League's aim of matching Japan's transfer revenue could see clubs raking more than $40 million a year. So that's where that figure has been plucked from. It's effectively from FFA's ambitions to match Japan's, which means that they're trying to match at least $40 million a year. So it's a it's a big ambition, I will say, Khalil, and to everybody that's tuning in and listening to this topic of conversation right now. Uh, and it's off the back of, if you're just joining us, uh, an article that Dominic uh, Bossy penned in the Sydney Morning Herald regarding FFA's plans to overhaul the transfer system. But um, it's something that we'll have to kind of watch this space on. Uh, but I, I want to move on now because um, speaking of articles, this is another one that you produced, Vince, and it was a really interesting topic from my perspective because it wasn't something that I was initially privy to. I mean, futsal is something that we're all quite aware of. It's something that I grew up loving to, to play when I was particularly in school when I was growing up. Um, but ultimately now there are a host of issues and families are currently owed thousands of dollars after paying for their children to play for Australia. Um, and it was a really insightful piece. Can you give us the crux of it for those that haven't had the chance to read it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a, a topic that's reasonably close to my heart. Um, I, I, you know, I don't play futsal at the moment. I used to quite a bit when I was in Brisbane and in Cairns. Um, I love it. 
mostly because I'm much better at futsal than I am at outdoor football. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, plays to my strength, smaller court. What can I say? <laughs> um, but, um, and it's, it's almost the kind of topic where I, you almost need to be thankful for COVID for giving me an in, uh, a way into this story because, um, you know, the intro was all about how um, there, were, there were these families who paid um, thousands upon thousands of dollars uh, to have their kids go on tours with the Australian Futsal Association uh, throughout the course of this year. Now, of course, those tours aren't happening because of COVID. And so now those families are trying to get their money back. And um, it appears that, you know, um, it's not forthcoming. Um, the AFA told me that they don't hold those money, those monies in trust uh, like travel agencies do. Um, so you have to assume that the money is not there to refund people because they've spent it on um, flights or accommodations or whatever. Um, some ex-employees suggested that it's probably been spent on on business costs and, and other things rather than the actual cost of the tours. But um, yeah, well, it's it's a it's a, it's a mess, and that's the way in, right? And the, the real story for me is who runs futsal in Australia, and it's a really interesting question because. I think a lot of parents and families uh, would see an event run by the Australian Futsal Association and receive a selection letter saying, your child's been picked uh, to represent Australia in an Australian representative team, you know, talking about what an honour it is. But in reality, the Australian Futsal Association is a business. The uh, governing body of futsal in Australia is FFA. However, FFA barely do anything in the futsal space. And I'm not going to whack them over this too much because... I understand and recognise that FFA's hands are totally full with football, outdoor football, organising all the things they have to organise. It's an enormous job in this country and <laughs> football is almost too much for FFA. So you can only imagine what they must have thought when this story came out and it's about futsal. It's like, well, on their priority list, where is futsal? It's, it's not particularly high up there because um, I think if you look at the uh, 11 principles document, by FFA earlier this year. I think futsal was only mentioned once or twice. Um, it's obviously not a huge priority. The issue is there are tens of thousands of people who play futsal in Australia and love it and don't think of it as just a way to train and get better for outdoor football. It's a, it's a, it's a sporting pursuit in its own right. It's a beautiful game. It's, it's at the Youth Olympics. It, it you know has aspirations of becoming an Olympic sport one day. In Europe and in South America, it's a spectator sport in its own right. It's great fun, fantastic. But they're not offering programs. And so what you have is a market that is entirely unregulated, where you've got private businesses from all over the country competing to fill in the gaps. The Australian Futsal Association is, is the biggest one. They've done it well. And as I've said in the story, um, a lot of what they do is good. They're, they are providing services, school programs, national titles, state championships, all these sort of things, because if they didn't, they probably wouldn't be there at all. There would be nothing being offered by FFA, I know that the state federations do some things in futsal, but clearly um, you have these businesses doing what they're doing now. So it's, it's, it's not enough. There's, there's more appetite out there and it's not being fed. And the issue is that um, it's unregulated. There's no one overseeing this stuff. There's no checks and balances. Sport Australia doesn't recognise any of these bodies, neither does FFA. And so you have a scenario where these people, these businesses can go about with practices that I guess you could say are questionable at best and, and potentially corrupt at worst. Um, it personally, it angers me when I hear about families, kids, parents who truly believed that 
they were representing Australia in whatever. And, um, you know, I think most people watching the show or most people who read the World Game are somewhat streetwise in Australian football. They, they'd sort of, they know the lay of the land. They know that FFA is probably supposed to be the, the official governing body. They recognise that. But um, think for a second if you're a newcomer to the game and, and you don't know the political machinations of Australian football and you've got an official sounding organisation telling you good news and your kid's really excited and you got to pay him. you got to, you got to, you got to fund the trip. Like it's, it's one of the quotes in the story is emotional blackmail. And, and it kind of is that. Um, and the, sort of the lengths that the AFA appear to have gone to, to make people think that they're more official than what they are, uh, are, you know, quite shocking for people who haven't heard this stuff. And yet it's sort of been an open secret in futsal in Australia for a long time. There's other businesses that do the same thing with international tours, using the green and gold, wearing coats of arms, all these sort of things. And personally, I and and not just me, it's, it's people within futsal in Australia recognise that it's a mess. It's not good. It needs to be cleaned up. The question is, who cleans it up? Is it going to be FFA? I don't know if they've got the resources or time to dedicate to futsal to clean it up the way it should be. Is it going to be Sport Australia, the former Australian Sports Commission? I don't know. They've probably got bigger fish to fry. And what we're left with is this. And I don't know how anyone who, who loves futsal, who loves football in Australia, could look at what the Australian futsal industry is and think that that's okay. I certainly don't. Mm, I think it should effectively be the Australian Sports Commission. I mean, I know you're saying they've got bigger fish to fry, but when you've got families who, you know, you point out here in the article, you contacted five families who were each owed between $7,000 and $14,000, while another is believed to be paid as much as $21,000. And um, and there are also most that are unwilling to be identified for fear of not being able to recoup some of the money down the line. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, $500 here or there. We're talking about about thousands and thousands of dollars. And then you've got the AFA chief executive, Alistair Miller, basically saying, well, it's a circular thing. We're owed money and we owe these people money. You name any travel or airline company that's not in the same boat. But, I mean, in terms of a potential recourse, uh, is there anything that you can bring to light on this, Vince, for these families and, and what options they have? Or do they just have to suck it up and see and hope that it's just because the pandemic has struck and that, you know, they'll get an answer down the line? Well, there are non-football avenues for them to pursue. I mean, um, Bernadette Allen, the parent that I spoke to for this story, whose, whose daughter is in the main photo, um, they've, they've, they've gone through solicitors and sent letters to the Australian Football Association. And, and it's now more than two weeks since that letter was sent and the AFA didn't respond, um, which is pretty disappointing. Um, you've got the ACCC who could step in here. Um, I think consumers, you know, uh, if you read up on basically what's allowed and what's not, um, as a result of COVID and, and travel packages and these sort of things, it seems like the AFA is is, is contravening that guidance from the, from the ACCC. So I'm sure the affected families uh, could have an avenue through the ACCC to fix things. There's been suggestions of maybe a, a class action lawsuit, something like that. I don't know. Um, there are ways and means for these people to go about getting their money back. But I mean, as this comment by Albert says, I mean, this has been going on for years. You, these people can get their money back, right? But it's not going to fix the root issue, which is um, a pretty distasteful industry at the moment, which is supposed to come under the umbrella of FFA. And again, I'll say, like, I don't think they have the time or resources to dedicate to cleaning it up the way it needs to. So it goes to 
government entities and other organisations um, to look at this and think, can we allow this to go on? Do we just wash our hands and move on? Or do we get our hands stuck in and, and, and see if we can reform this space? I mean, a lot of the people I've spoken to think that a separate futsal entity should be created and it should be affiliated with FFA, but run separately with its own money from the government or Sport Australia or whatever. Um, and this entity should have the official FIFA affiliation uh, for futsal and it should also have the AMF affiliation for futsal. Of course, there being two world governing bodies um, in futsal. There is a third world governing body, uh, the International Futsal Alliance, which I've mentioned in the story, but uh, it's not really a serious international entity. Uh, there are some questionable practices going on there, but the answer for futsal people is to empower futsal as a sport, as its own individual sport, not just an add-on to football. Um, I think that is the most logical way to fix this, knowing that um, the FFA have their hands full, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. And I'm certainly not done with this story. I'm going to be following it up. Well, we're looking forward to seeing how it unfolds. I think it was pretty disturbing to read the former AFA employee when he came out and said they want people to believe they're the governing body, but it's a business. And I think a lot of people, even within football, and I'm not just saying futsal, but within football could agree that um, it has become uh, much more like a business and it has become about the sport. When you look at private academies, et cetera, and the money that we're charging kids to play, it's just um, it's gotten out of hand. So a couple more questions for the great Vincenzo before we say goodbye to him. Yeah, well, I was just going to say uh, on all this kind of futsal, I'm playing futsal tonight. Uh, I'm in my semifinal, so come on, Brooke Alona, <laughs> let's get the win. Um, but just a thing of like, yeah, it is played by so many, so many people across, you know, and I don't know how much is actually registered and, you know, I, I just play at a comp in mascot and I don't know, there's no federation, there's no nothing, you just play. I've been playing since I was a kid and, and I absolutely love the sport and talk about it. Yeah, it is its own sport, its own right, but it's, it is a wonderful way to learn football. It has all the principles of, you know, 11 aside there in terms of tactics, touch, technique, everything is there uh, for you to learn the game. So I, I think it's vital that uh, even if the FA can't intervene now, longer term, that they find a strategy for this game because I think it, it not only is it a wonderful way to teach kids um, how to play the game and, and all the aspects that you need to learn, both tactical and technical, but also there, there is a lot of money that you could make as a federation from this game. Like it's an easier game to play. You can play, you know, for example, as soon as one game finishes, the next game starts. So you can end up having 150 people play across a night in your center, uh, all paying, you know, I think they're paying like 150 bucks or 160 bucks for a 12 game season. So I think there's a, a big opportunity there for FA long term. And I understand what Vince is saying right now. And I think uh, one of the comments has said it as well. There's a lot going on, but they need to look at this long term because. There's value in it, I think, long term. And if you look at, I think, uh, the Futsal Roos results, we used to regularly qualify uh, for World Cups and stuff like that. Um, now, I think, you know, in 2018, we didn't even go to the AFC Futsal Championship. Uh, we withdrew, I think, over money. In 2020 we, or 2019, we didn't qualify for the World Cup. So I know there's issues with the Futsal Roos as well, which, you know, it's an international sport. They're representing us. I understand it's not the same as men and women's outdoor football, but... There's a lot of reasons, I think, for everyone to be concerned, uh, like he's saying. So it's a shame that uh, people are just not caring. Definitely. Um, on, on futsal, like, you know, you're absolutely right. There's money to be made um, in futsal for sure. I think Rob Sherman in his uh, departing manifesto talked about 
social football and if you know FFA could get on top of this stuff, the revenue streams it could bring into the game. Like we talk about um, just before the transfer thing, the, the $40 million we want to bring into the game. We want to bring in more money into the game. We need to do better jobs with things like futsal, which is a huge part of social football across Australia. Um, I think there's 60,000 people, uh, according to FFA's participation census, who, who are registered to play futsal. I reckon there's more probably. Um, there would have so, to be, you know, so so many. What to do with it, Vince? It seems bizarre to me that FFA then have no involvement in it. I mean, it's strange when you consider all of this. Well, I mean, you've got to think that, okay, what are the services that, the Australian Futsal Association are offering. They're offering school programs. They're offering state national championships. They're offering international teams. Um, all of these things require manpower, coaches, uh, administrators, people to facilitate all these So bring them on board. Bring them on board. Get them involved operating as an umbrella, you know, as a as an entity under the FFA umbrella so you can allow for regulation and for things like this to, to kind Definitely. of, you know, monitored. I think it should happen, yeah. Whether they actually absorb the AFA, I, I personally doubt, looking at some of their practices recently. I think you probably mm -hmm. need to put a broom through the entire futsal industry, to be honest, and, and rebuild it from the ground up to, to do all these things. It's, it's a big task. It's not as simple as just clicking your fingers and saying, do it. These are people who need to be paid, systems that need to be put in place, all this sort of stuff. But we've got to start at some point. And, and the other thing I'll say about futsal, I mentioned the Youth Olympics before and the Olympics. Um, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, like if you ask me tomorrow, we'll put futsal in the Olympic Games and get rid of outdoor football, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Like that's an absolute no-brainer for me. Put it at the Commonwealth Games as well. Like that is exactly the kind of sport that should be played at the Olympics. And I think if what? you played... Would you be willing to sacrifice outdoor football for futsal at the Olympics? Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think football, it's good, right? Like I'll watch it. It's good fun. Um but it's, it doesn't mean that much. I mean, FIFA could... It's not, it's create... not the pinnacle of the sport. Exactly. Now, it's difficult for women's football because it sort of is, um, or it's one of the, the joint pinnacles, I guess you could say. I don't know if you ask any women's footballer whether they'd value a World Cup or, an, or a gold medal more. It's not as cut and dried as it is in men's football, obviously, because it's 23s for the men's game. But And it probably won't happen now that I think about it because I'm pretty sure the IOC rakes in big money from ticket sales and broadcasting for football. It's the most watched yeah. thing at the Olympics. Mm. But if you're talking about... Thing as well. Exactly. But if you're talking about giving an opportunity for sports to be represented that don't get that opportunity um, normally through their own tournaments, futsal is an absolute no-brainer. It should be at the Olympics and it would be pretty popular at the Olympics as well. Um, and maybe something like Olympic... Um, selection as a sport is, is maybe one of the few catalysts I can think of that would prompt government bodies and, and other entities to actually start looking at futsal and cleaning it up. Because could you imagine if they brought in futsal for the next Olympics, like not Tokyo, but the one after, what sort of mess FFA would have to wade through to figure out, okay, how many futsal players are there in Australia? Who's good? Why do we have seven different businesses claiming that they run the game? Why are there, um, you know, three people who say they played for the Australian under-17 girls team, but they're all different teams. You know what I mean? It's a complete mess. Um, and I just I just want to see it cleaned up as soon as possible. And can I also say, it's no coincidence that if you look at the teams or the countries that kind of have the most successful futsal leagues and just futsal system, Brazil, Spain, Portugal, three of the most successful national teams there are, 
three of the biggest producers of talent uh, in that game. So it's just the knock-on effect that it has. And again, we're saying it should be its thing in its own right, but there's just so much value for for a football nation just generally. And also, it's a much more accessible game. It's it's just so much easier for me, for example, just to go play for an hour down at the court, boom, go and and done. I think it's much more accessible for a lot of people, especially if they you know live in places where the pitches aren't really available wherever that may be. So I don't know. It's um, it's definitely something to be discussed. Well, one more thing I'll add on that, just quickly, Lucy, yeah. sorry, is that um, in the last few days the, the English FA has actually pulled funding for um, uh, their elite national teams and futsal programs. So mm-hmm. what you're seeing, I think, as a result of COVID is that all of these football associations around the world are tightening their belts and... A lot of them are, you know, tasked by FIFA with overseeing futsal in their country. So what's Mm -hmm. the first thing that's going to drop off their priority list? A different sport. You know what I mean? Of course it's going to happen this way. So that's why I tend to be of the view that maybe it should be run separately, but, you know, in its own way connected to the football body in each of those countries, you know, because um, futsal is obviously viewed as expendable by many associations and not a priority by others. And... What you're left with is uh, a total disaster for sport governance and, I guess, the enjoyment of sport at a, at a human level for these kids and families who are involved. Really well said, Vint, and, and well done to you on bringing this um, this really challenging topic to light. I think it takes reporters like you to unearth things like this in the first instance for it to then become something that, uh, you know, the governing body potentially could look at, the Australian Sports Commission could really start to investigate. So thank you for the good work that you do. Alex Sivkarovsky also reflecting some comments in favour of Futsal, saying you can play 12 months of the year. Most games cost players 10 to $20 per game, which is also another really crucial element in all of this. Um, I the only reason I raised the question about you'd rather see futsal in over football is that I think there's a place for both. So I'd like to see that you know that's going forward. That could be something that could be introduced. But that is a matter for the International Olympic Committee. Vincenzo Rugardi, you do such great work. You, we are the biggest fans of yours. We'd love to also see Don Bossi on the show. You guys at the Sydney Morning Herald do great work covering the game at a time when we've seen most of our really highly talented journalists leave. But you haven't abandoned us. Please stick with us, stick with football. We need more journalists like you. So thank you for all the good work that you're doing for stopping by to chat to us here on the World Game Live. It's always a pleasure, my friend. My pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for the kind words and uh, and the chance to talk about all sorts of things in football today, but in particular futsal. It's a topic that I love. I want to see change there. Um, so let's, let's, let's keep rattling the cages until it happens, eh? Couldn't agree more and stick with the story. We look forward to seeing how it unfolds because hopefully there's only positive to come out of what's been highly negative for the sport, unfortunately. Thanks. Good on you, Vince. Take care. And I'm sure that everyone that's tuned in thus far has also enjoyed the company of Vince Rugardi. He's such a top guy, stolid jump, and always doing fantastic work and covering a, a multitude of sports as well. So it's, it's really great to have someone of his calibre uh, offer some insight into stories that perhaps we never really would have known about in the past. Yeah, this is exactly the kind of stories that you like to see. Well, not maybe not like to see, but it is important to see on Earth because they do bring up something that, you know, we're kind of always concentrating on what's happening in, you know, 
football 11 aside and but really if i if i even take myself i play futsal as much as i play the outdoor game and i think a lot of people would be in that situation and it's very important uh, to me and it's very important for to all the people i play with and all the people i play against and and yeah like, like we keep saying it, there's just so much potential in the game not only for us to succeed on the international level, whether that be at Olympics. But, you know, think about how many potential A-League fans are playing futsal, potentially how many players. We see players like Tom Rogic, for example, have more success initially in futsal. I think it was a futsal role at like 19. And then he goes on to play for the Socceroos. So, and he's probably technically one of our best players that we've had in the last uh, five, ten years. Um, Actually, speaking of uh, another Aussie, I'm pretty sure played futsal when he was young, Daniel Arzani. Uh, mm-hmm. I know we're going to talk about Aussies abroad, and maybe we can do that now. But he got his uh, first assist uh, mm-hmm. for Utrecht, and apparently the guy who's in his position on the right wing is getting sold to Leeds. So we should see him in the starting eleven soon. Thank you, Marcelo Bielsa, once again, helping us out. And, uh, yeah, Azani, he's looking really good, actually. Uh, yeah. He had, like, 20 minutes off the bench in the game before. He was setting up chances, going past players, confident, taking free kicks. Um, yeah, and he also seems like the other players are really kind of, I mean, you're only going off body language, but it does seem like they're really uh, accepting of him as well, which is really important. So we just hope that our most talented player that we've had, in my opinion, since Harry Kuehl is going to start really kicking on. But there's a few Aussies who are doing well uh, across the board, actually. They are. And give us a wrap of what's happening. I mean, we've seen some great news, of course, that uh, Aiden Hustrik has joined Frankfurt. Then you've got yeah. Taggart who scored a hat-trick. Mabil, 90 minutes away from the UCL group stages. Arzani, you mentioned there with an assist. Ellie Carpenter scored her first goal for Lyon. It's been a fantastic spell for some Aussies abroad, um, Stolich, when we wouldn't ordinarily hear about this. But it's good to see them, even though some of them aren't in the strongest leagues in the world, it's good to see them actually doing well. Yeah, and Rustic, that's a big step up. I mean, to play Bundesliga, and, you know, I think they've given him a four-year deal and they've given him the number seven number as well. So that's a, they're really backing him, it looks like. I mean, we've seen players before join big clubs and then not get game time. It'll take a little bit of time for Rustic to, you know, be in the starting 11, I think. But, you know, that could be huge for him and huge for Australian football. And I remember in um, one of the last games uh, the Socceroos played before all this COVID thing, I remember Foz being extremely impressed with uh, Rustic. I think he came off the bench and set up three assists and he was saying, this guy is such a talented player. We haven't been able to see much of him playing for Groningen, though he has been playing well from all accounts. Now we really get a chance to see him as obviously the Bundesliga is a much more accessible league. Uh, that's going to be great. Great for Adam Taggart to score a hat-trick. He's been kind of under pressure there. They've been struggling a bit. I know he wants out of the club. He's openly admitted that he wants out. He's talk of going to Saudi Arabia. But the fact that the fact that he's scoring is going to help him, you know, it's going to make the club he wants to bring him in even more desperate to get him. It's just going to increase his value. It's better for him. It's better for us. Um, AY Mobile, 90 minutes away from the UCL group stage. They drew uh, the first leg. Nil-nil to Slavia Prague. They play tomorrow morning, so keep an eye out for that. We'll have the highlights for you on the World Game website. We'll have everything from it. But, you know, he's there. That'd be massive for him. Six games potentially, potentially more. Um, if, if they get to the group stage, they're at home. Nil all draw in the first leg, so they do need to score. And hopefully it'll be Mabil who scores. Uh, again, another one of our Socceroos. And then Ellie Carpenter scoring her first goal uh, for Lyon. That was great. 
It was fantastic to see. And, of course, you know, there's been so much hype and discussion around Ellie joining, you know, one of the biggest powerhouses in women's football, of course, in the world. Um, and, and just, you know, since she joined in June, of course, all of us were eagerly awaiting to see her make her debut in the Champions League stages. We were robbed of that, unfortunately. But now to see her in her role, I mean, there were always going to be doubts about her being able to start over someone like a, a Lucy Bronze, who, let's face it, is one of the best uh, right-backs in, in the world. Right, but then with her leaving, it really opened up the door for Ellie to come in as her as her understudy and to also train with her during that time to have that exposure in that environment was something invaluable for someone of Ellie's caliber who we know is just going to continue to go from strength to strength. She's already such a young girl, but I think the the you know the the strides in her development that we're going to witness over the next few years, particularly building up towards the Women's World Cup in 2023, are going to be phenomenal. So it's fantastic to see our Aussies abroad doing as well as what. They possibly can. Um, uh, before we sort of look to to wrap up on what we've seen across Europe, um, I know that there has been a lot of discussion about sort of you know the state of the game here in Australia and with reference to sort of, you know, how we've been covering the game at the World Game here um, and, you know, the issues that have been arising between the PFA and the collective bargaining agreement dispute involving the clubs. Um, what I will say is this. We touched on it briefly earlier, uh, Stolich, um, and that it's that, you know, we've been accused of being quite negative at times. Um, and, and what I want to say to that is what we're talking about is a, re a direct reflection of the state of affairs going on in Australian football right now, which we all know to be highly unpleasant and very unpleasant unseemly for all of the stakeholders involved, whether that be the owners who, of course, are experiencing great financial strain, no thanks to COVID, and as well as the players, as well as the PFA who are representing the players, as well as the FFA who are embroiled in all of this and this unbundling, this infamous unbundling process. So everyone is feeling it right now. Our job here at the World Game is to not be a cheerleader. It's to not side with anyone in particular, although I've been very honest in saying that I'm on the side of the players because I think that they've been hurting for a very long time throughout the mismanagement of this competition, throughout the decisions that, that owners have made that have been terrible over the years, and they have been the ones that have been suffering. I've been very transparent in admitting my thoughts around that. As to where we get our information from, it is not from anyone's source. And as journalists, it's our job to protect those sources. But what I will say is that it's not directly coming from the PFA. It's not directly coming from players. It's not directly coming from agents. It's be, it's coming from a wide variety of sources. It's our job to do the best job that we possibly can to cover this and to also offer our opinions as passionate football lovers in this country. That is why we're here. It's certainly why I'm here. It's why Nick Stoll is here and it's why all of our staff at the World Game are here. We live and breathe football. It is what we do and it's why we'll continue to do it and we'll cover it in the best way possible and try to do it with the utmost integrity and values and morals held in place. Now, I know that there have been CEOs that have taken issue with some of the comments that we've made and questions that we've raised around their football clubs, myself and Nick Stoll included. A lot of this stems from our interactions with Danny Townsend, the CEO of Sydney, Sydney Football Club. And I know that a lot of you have been privy to a lot of those interactions and that you've seen them play out across Twitter. Our issues with Danny Townsend started here. Both myself and Nick Stoll were on the World Game Show discussing Sydney FC's success, which we've been huge fans of, huge admirers of. We've had players on the show. We've spoken to Steve Corica multiple times. He's been very gracious. Their, their media manager, Dave Warren, is fantastic, and we have no issues with Danny Townsend whatsoever. But our issues with him started when we raised the question of why aren't we seeing their success on the field translate off the field? Why aren't we seeing more membership numbers? We want to see more bums on seats because we feel 
that Australia's most successful football club in 43 years of football deserves that. Danny said that we need to do our research, that we hadn't done enough of that, and he encouraged us to bring him on the show to talk about it. But we asked the question of why aren't we seeing that? Are they doing enough in the community space, right? Danny came on, we spoke to him, lovely guy. Like I said, we have no issues with Danny Townsend whatsoever. He said, well, actually, my predecessor hadn't even ever picked up the phone and spoken to any of our associations in the past. So we agree that no, we weren't doing enough, but we're now in the midst of a one-year to five-year strategy to try and improve that. And we've got people deployed across all of our seven associations doing work. We're out of pocket to try and make this happen, right? We buried it then and there. Then another article came out in which one of our journalists, Dave Lewis, mentioned that Sydney FC players had only been paid 50% of their wage. Danny Townsend then came out again on Twitter and said that's inaccurate. It was accurate because at that time, the players had only been paid 50% of their wage. They expected to receive a monthly payment. Sydney FC had made the decision to switch their payment system from a monthly to a fortnightly system, of which I'm told from good, credible sources that the players weren't aware of that. They didn't know that. So Danny said that was inaccurate. It was, in fact, accurate. Then what we've seen are a string of events which have involved other owners at football clubs, namely Tony Sage at Perth Glory. On the 20th of September, Tony Sage wrote an open letter to the Glory family in which he was quoted as saying, some other clubs will stand down players and staff. Other clubs may pay 50% of current salaries, but all owners, all owners, owners are unanimous in offering the players a 30% reduction for this upcoming season because that's all the money that there is. This information in subsequent days was reported in an article in which it was also attributed to Perth Glory and Sydney FC. Danny Townsend took issue with that once again. Now, we're in a situation where, like I said, we have no issues, Stolich, and I welcome you back into this conversation. We've had no issue with Danny Townsend or Sydney FC at any given point. But we as journalists are entitled to ask questions and are also in a position where we're having to print and run stories based on what the owner's cohort are saying at this time. So when Tony Sage, who is another football club owner, who has also openly come out and said that he's looking for somebody else to buy into the football club because of how challenging this fiscal climate has been for him solitary Australian owner, that he's the only one, that the owners are the only ones that are effectively pumping money into the game. When someone like that comes out and says all the owners are unanimous in all of that, what do they expect the media to do, right? That is what we're trying to make sense of in a very challenging time for everybody, as I've said. So we are not intentionally negative. We're not looking to take aim at James Johnson, at Football Federation Australia, at club owners, at anyone in particular and justified. And as it stands, Australian football is divided. It's in a massive state of mess. And we, as lovers of the game, are entitled to have a view on that. If people have a counter-argument or a counter-view to that, we welcome them to come on the program, but don't accuse us of being willfully negative when there is nothing at this point to be positive about. Stolich, over to you. <laughs> Good. 
take a little breath there. But yeah, I 100% agree. And not only that, some of the things I've said is, oh, yeah, the SBS, that they, they don't like the A-League or something. We have an A-League dedicated show and we don't even show the A-League. So, you know, we're, we're the ones here talking about it for an hour, having guests on the show, having I regular players, coaches. Ago saying we need to love the A-League more. I said yeah. we need to start respecting the game more. The other, the other one I see the criticism is, oh, uh, you're a you're a Euro snob, uh, blah blah. You don't know, like, well, hold on. I criticise Barcelona's board. I criticised them for about four weeks in a row, saying that they had to resign. I wrote a massive article saying why they were a disaster. Does that make me a Premier League snob? Does that make me a you know? No one would accuse me of not liking or not loving Barcelona. This is insane. So I don't know. I just see all this criticism. I just think, listen, just because we criticize some of the things that happen with the A-League, something we don't love, the A-League. Who would benefit from the A-League succeeding? Two journalists who work on football. That's their full-time job. We are the ones who will literally financially benefit from the A-League succeeding and the second division succeeding, by the way. So the, the, the ridiculousness that I see, oh, we just want Australian football to fail. Literally, no. If Australian football fails, we will lose our jobs. This yeah. would be the worst thing. So... I don't know. This to me, I, I just think it's absolutely ridiculous. I think, yeah, just because we sometimes criticize things, I don't think anyone should be above criticism. You know, I don't think owners should be above criticism. I don't think players should be above criticism, referees, coaches. We're not above it. Sometimes we get things wrong. And for that, we will apologize. And for that, we will accept that we're human. And we're not always going to get it right. As journalists, you're often at the mercy of what you believe to be trusted sources telling you information. But at the same time, when there's so much misinformation being spewed out in the public domain, who we believe to be people in the know, like Tony Sage, for example, um, and, and we'll take as someone that's a representative of this existing cohort, right, because you've got no single solitary voice that's coming out and representing the collective. There's very little that can be done out of that going forward and trying to make sense of it. So it's been a really challenging time for everybody. But one thing that has to be said in all of this knowledge is that we hope that they are able to achieve a solid outcome that makes everyone as happy as they possibly could be. Now, I know that's going to be very difficult because the players are in a situation where they're not feeling like what's being tabled to them is fair and equitable. And also the owners are feeling like, well, yes, actually, we have pumped a lot into the game, but we've lost a lot but we're not in a position to be able to keep bleeding money. If that's the case, my very sage advice, pardon the pun, has always been sell the football club and get out of the game. Give it to somebody that's going to treat the game and the club and the fans and the relevant stakeholders with the respect that they deserve. I know that Tony Sage wants to still maintain a semblance of control and ownership at that football club, but he has come out repeatedly time and time again over the years and said that he's never regretted spending all of the money, which has been $35 million plus in excess he projects to have lost, and never regret a cent of it. On the eve of the grand final, he penned a very heartfelt letter in The Australian saying he loved his football. He'd grown up loving Perth Glory, how he'd effectively fought very hard to retain the colours and the badge and the name and everything that this great, rich, storied football club had represented over the years, stretching back to the National Soccer League days. We commend him for that. But Tony, if you cannot conduct yourself in a way that's fair to the fans, that's fair to the players and everybody involved, then step aside and give someone the chance to be able to do so. And that applies to every owner and every administrator in this situation. Stolich, I don't know what more we can say on this before we wrap up the show and do a quick view of uh, what's going on in Europe. 
No, and I just would like to, you know, maybe even hear from our audience what they want from us because I would think, and this is kind of something that we always talk about, is if when I'm watching a show, I don't want it sugarcoated. I want to know exactly what is happening with Australian football. So, you know, when it's positive, you know, when, you know, for example, the Matilda's announcement, it's great. It looks like it's gone a really good choice. Everyone's really happy about it. We'll judge him when, you know, they play some games and we actually can see what he's done. But right now it looks good. Women's World Cup in 2023, fantastic. There's a lot to be positive about. But when it comes to issues like, you know, Vince brought up and the debacle around futsal in this country, we're going to have to discuss that as well. So in my opinion, when I watch discussion shows about football, whether it be in Australia or overseas, I don't want anything sugar-coated. So I just don't want people to think that there's some negativity or some, well, we're we're whinging about everything. No, we celebrate the good things and we critique the bad things because we want it to improve. That's the thing. When it came to, for example, the original thing that we come back to, why Sydney FC weren't having as much success off the field as they were having on the field. That's because I want Sydney FC to be a massive club with 50,000 members, full stadium, winning Asian Champions League. By the way, I want that for the Wanderers as well. You know, it's not a question of bias. So that to me is the thing. What do you actually want uh, out of this? And I would think, in my opinion, I always come into this show saying, well, I'm just going to say exactly how I think it is. I'm always going to question people I think who should be questioned. And, yeah, when it comes to A-League owners, for example, with Tony Sage, I think he's done some really good things. He's also done some pretty bad things. It's important to say both. There's no – no one's perfect. No one is flawless. You know, no one no one is completely bad either. But I just would like to think that people under there can understand the nuance, the difference between – that we can say just because we dislike that some, what someone has done does not make it personal, nor does it if we criticise a club doesn't mean we hate that club, we're, out, we're against the club or the league or anything like that. I just think sometimes we're extremely fragile in this country. And by the way, this is one of the very few shows that exist where we even discuss these issues. I don't know too many others that exist that, that discuss these issues. So maybe that's why. Maybe people just are not used to this level of discussion. But I would like to think that it will continue and I'd like to think that the audience would enjoy us to have this discussion. Well, we will continue having these discussions. Of course, it's all about what the audience want, but it's all about what we want to give the audience too, which is good, honest truth, integrity from a brand that's been continuing on will and excessive over 30 years and um, and with values that uh, the great Les Murray and Johnny Warren have upheld and instilled in this organisation, in addition to the legendary Craig Foster, who we still miss having on our platform regularly every day. Yeah, Stolich, let's move on now. Let's wrap up the show on a more positive note um, and quickly just take a look at what's been happening in Europe because there's been a hell of a lot of movement um, and, and, you know, some some really impressive results and some not-so-impressive moments as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, incredible in the Premier League this week. Obviously, um, Man City copping five goals for the first time uh, with Pep Guardiola. Uh, That was just absolutely insane. Bayern Munich copping four goals against Hoffenheim. That was even crazier. Uh, I think we're starting to see some of the kind of effects of this crazy season. There has been no preseason, no, well, very few supporters in the stands, uh, congested fixtures. Uh, you know, they're, they're tired from uh, the season just finishing, buying what they won the Champions League like three weeks ago or something like that. So I think we're going to see crazy results. We're seeing Everton top the table, Leicester top the table, Chelsea copping three goals to West Brom, this kind of crazy stuff. So I, I, I really like it. Actually, I, I like seeing kind of the big team struggle. Uh, we see Dortmund, uh, I think, struggled as well. So, you know, as long as Barca aren't struggling, which uh, thankfully they're not in their first game, 
It was the first time in about 10 years I've been surprised at how good they played. Uh, never mind that. As my uh, girlfriend returns home, uh, obviously a big watcher of the show just walking through the door. I'm probably thinking, oh, God, I thought the show was supposed to be over by now. Is they still gibbering? Yes, we are still gibbering, unfortunately, for many of you because we couldn't keep gibbering all day. I'll tell you who is really worrying me, though, Fulham. Um, you know, after scrapping and scrounging to get back into the Premier League again, I thought they were going to really start to learn the lessons and um, the mistakes of the past, but it looks as though it hasn't been the bright start that they were hoping for. Um, they just can't seem to get it right, can they, Stolich, in the top flight? No, they're going down. I mean, it's early. You don't want to say it too early, but it looks like they're going down. They're awful. Some of the defending is horrendous. And then you had the, the director of football come out on Twitter after the game. It just finished. Oh, I'm so sorry. We're going to sign lots of players. And it's like, well, hold on. If I'm an, if I'm the club that you're trying to bid from, I'm going to say, I just saw that tweet. The price has gone up 10 million. If you're that desperate, let's go. And then also, if I'm the players currently playing at Fulham, I go, hold on. You can't be doing this in public. It's absolutely, yeah. I think Jamie Carragher called him a clown. Like, it's ridiculous what, what he did. So it's a disaster at Fulham. It's been a disaster. I think every time they've come up, they're a yo yo club. And uh, I don't really like these yo yo clubs. I really like these teams that come up like Sheffield United uh, last season, like Wolves, although Wolves have a lot more money. But yeah, Fulham. Just an absolute uh, disaster. Um, A-League memes with a question before we wrap things up with good news, bad news, a new segment that we're introducing on the show every week. A-League memes, can we have Freya on instead of Nick next week? Freya, would love to have you on any Freya, you want to come on the show? Yeah, if you want. No, nah, Freya doesn't want to come on. <laughs> he goes, not really. <laughs> not really. Nah, I'm right. Catch you later. There you go. <laughs> Look at her. Yeah. She's got hair. Or oh, A-League memes hair is possible. I'm, that is also possible too. I'm rating it. Freya, you're welcome on this program anytime as we look to wrap up, of course. Um, and your boyfriend has very smartly introduced a new segment um, that we're going to be going through every week called Good News, Bad News, in which the both <laughs> Don't push her out of shot, in which the both of us select an item of good news and an item of bad news. And we're also encouraging all of our viewers to do the same. Give us a piece of good news that you found and also give us a piece of bad news, maybe something that deserves a bit of love and a bit of work and improvement going forward. So, Stolich, over to you, your first item of good news, please. All right, my first item of good news is this was my favourite uh, story from the weekend, which was Ansu Fati should have been given the man of the match performance for his two goals that he scored for Barca Villarreal. We'll roll some highlights now. But the reason that he couldn't uh, get the man of the match award is because he's too young. Uh, Ansu Fati is 17 years old. The man of the match award is sponsored by Budweiser. And according to Spanish law, you can't have someone under the eight age of 18 promoting alcohol so by the fact that he would have so they gave it to Jordi Alba who by the way his hair is absolutely horrendous apparently he's getting like transplant or something at the moment never seen someone so patchy but Ansu Fati is an unbelievable <laughs> talent 17 <laughs> years old playing you know 17 years old would be impressive in the A-League he's playing for Barcelona he's scoring two goals he's getting in the way of Messi and scoring he won a penalty gave the ball to Messi like all right I'll, I'll let you boost your confidence you can you can score as well Ansu Fati is the truth he scored for Spain youngest ever player scoring for Spain and I'll just say Barcelona they spent three years trying to buy players for 100 million Dembele 100 million Coutinho 100 million uh Griezmann 100 million the 100 million player is in your youth academy. He cost you zero. Invest in youth. Invest in the youngsters. But Ansu Fati, he is my good news of the week, and I just love, love watching him play football. 
unbelievable player and it's been good for Barca in the midst of what's been a string of uh, you know bad publicity uh, over the last uh, couple of months particularly with reference to Lionel Messi who of course when Messi scored I think he dedicated his goal celebration to his good mate Luis Suarez who also happens to be my good news of the week fantastic to see him on debut scoring assisting I mean the guy's just a machine and I think that the, the saddest thing for me in all of this was that he never wanted to leave Barca. You and I, Stolich, were talking about this earlier. You know, you could see he was crying. He was he was racked with so much emotion in that press conference that he gave, his departing press conference um, with Barca. Uh, you know, the Lionel Messi's tribute to him, it actually made me a bit teary-eyed and emotional because you know how close these two are and the relationship that they've developed as both friends and, and godparents to each other's children but also as as a partnership on the field. But Luis Suarez, that's my good news for the week. Um, fantastic to do him so well. I, I won't lie, it was so weird to see him in athletical colours. Um, there was something that just didn't feel right about it and I said to you earlier off-air that he actually deserved to retire with with Barca, someone made the point on Twitter saying that, you know, this is a guy with respect to Suarez who won the Pichichi in the era of Ronaldo and Messi. I mean, you cannot underestimate his achievements and his statistics um, with Barca, but overall in football, you know, I think there are still Liverpool fans who would be happy, I'm included, to have him back at Anfield um, because he was just such a, a, an epic and a giant of the game for us in the Premier League. But, um, you know, I wish him all the very best. I hope that when they do end up playing against Barca, uh, that it's just it's going to be fueled with so much emotion um, and fire, uh, but um, that's that's my good news for the week. And I think what better way to um, to wrap things up than on that note? But um, what was your bad news? Well, I just quickly say, Luis Suarez. I, even as a Barca fan, it was fantastic to see him play so well. Twenty minutes, he had two goals, one assist, one a penalty. Uh, he's such a fantastic player. And let me tell you something: a motivated Luis Suarez is a scary, scary sight. Ooh, I think yeah. I think Diego Simeone is going to get the best out of him. Uh, he's going to be yep. working with uh, Jao Felix as well, who I think is going to really. Uh, kind of get the best out of Luis Suarez as well. And Luis Suarez is going to get the best out of Jao Felix. I think it's going to be an epic combination for Atleti. Atleti are a good chance to possibly win the league now with Barca and Madrid both struggling. I, I 6-1 win is incredible. But, yeah, Luis Suarez, he's a fantastic player. And Barcelona, in my opinion, should have held on to him. Maybe he shouldn't have been starting every game. Maybe he should have been rotated more. And Maybe there is a difficulty in doing that. I don't know. But, you know, it would have made Messi happier. He still clearly, clearly, look at this, as something to give. He's a fantastic, fantastic player. I think he's going to score a lot of goals. And Barca made this mistake once before. They let David Villa go to Atleti for 5 million euros. And what happened that year? Atleti won the league and qualified for the Champions League final. Barcelona, zilch, and went out of the quarterfinals. So let's just, uh, I think it's a big mistake from Barca, but I do think it is good news. Uh, Luis Suarez is a wonderful player. That season that he had at Liverpool, in my opinion, it's the best individual season in the Premier League history. He, he played about, he had missed the first seven games on him because he bit um, Ivanovic, but then he came back. He was scoring in every game. I was watching Liverpool just to watch Suarez. He was that good. It was that exciting. It felt like every time he got the ball, something was going to happen. He's a wonderful, wonderful player, uh, and I think uh, it's going to be a really great season for him. Couldn't agree more. Well done. He could um, just be revitalised by this whole nonsense. Um, for you, let's wrap up the show with your bad news. My bad news is Pep Guardiola. I mean, come on, Mary. Like, I always think of Pep Guardiola as the best coach in the world. You're copping five, man. 
It, it looks a disaster. He spent another $65 million on a defender. It's like, man, come on. You, one of these defenders has got to work out. Uh, you know, they've spent so much money. But, yeah, City, they look really, really in trouble. And I do wonder if Guardiola, he's a very intense character, very intense. He's been, I think it's his fifth season now. Is that starting to wear out on some of the players? No matter how good a coach you are, and I think we even saw it with Klopp at Dortmund, for example, no matter how good a coach you are, was in at Mourinho with every club he's had pretty much. Um, well, three years, three years is the curse with Mourinho. <laughs> I mean, one year at Spurs at the moment. But, yeah, I don't know. It's, just uh, City. Uh, I really, really enjoyed watching uh, Guardiola's City over the last few years, uh, but all the, even a bit less so in the last year. I think um, he's tinkering with things and he's playing double pivots uh, with Fernandinho and, and Rodri, and I just don't like it as much. And I think I was kind of expecting an improvement, and it looks like they're regressing. So that's my bad news of the week. What about you? So I think next week we're going to do bad news, good news. We finish on a high. We should but, end up on a high note. But, I mean, look, it's, you know, it's good news first to get you perked up, and then we sucker punch you with some bad news. No, look, my bad news is um, something off the back of what we discussed today when we put the question to both Sam Lewis and Vince Rugardi about, uh, you know, any ideas, any intelligence that they could reveal around the potential start dates for both the A-League and W-League season. Sam Lewis seems to think, hopefully, touch wood, I hope that that comes to fruition in the coming weeks. We'll have some clarity around that. But my bad news is that we still don't know what's going on with the A-League and the W-League. I mean, you're seeing players being re-signed, um, you know, in the midst of all of this uncertainty with the collective bargaining agreement, which we can put to the side, we still don't know what's happening with the salary caps. Are they going to be reduced? Um, you know, if, if clubs are re-signing players, does that mean that they already know what the salary cap is going to look like for next season? We just want more clarity as a football community as to what's going on there. Um, and we have sort of made requests to Football Federation Australia in the past month or so, during the month of September twice, actually, uh, to have Gregor O'Rourke, who is the head of leagues, join us on the show to give us more clarity around that. He hasn't been able to, to come on. Um, but I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks that we can come to some kind of an agreement to get the powers that be, whether that's the club's, whether that's Football Federation Australia, I mean, as Vince said earlier, we don't know who's steering the ship anymore. So as part of this unbundling process, we know that the clubs are supposed to go to the negotiation table with the PFA over the collective bargaining agreement. But we also know then that FFA still have to have the final say on any clubs looking to to, to come into the competition um, on clubs that could potentially be sold, a la the Jets, the Mariners, and potentially a portion of Perth Glory. So who has what over what? Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's really an interesting time for Australian football, but we'd love to have some more clarity around that. But still bad news, we don't know anything yet as to when those competitions will restart. Guys, it has been a mammoth of a show, almost two hours today of non-stop jibber. So much to get through, so much to discuss. Of course, the great news is that we do have a new coach announced, Swedishman. We do have Tony Gustafsson, who will be leading the Matildas for the next four years. It was announced overnight. Well done to FFA on that appointment. It seems as though he was the best decision going forward because of all of his experience that he has both internationally and at club level. The man knows what it takes to win and we look forward to seeing what he manages to do with his Matilda side going forward. Of course, for a lot of the stories that we have discussed, you can head to the World Game website. That is your one-stop shop for all things football-related, both domestically and abroad. But Stolich, great show from you today and great from everybody tuning in. It's been a massive one. And if you have missed some of it, you can catch it on demand later on when we pop it up online. But in the meantime, on behalf of myself, the great Nick Stoll coming to us from his home here in Sydney, as well as uh, Freya, who I believe someone said Freya is the goat, making a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> and every 
everyone here at the World Game. It's goodbye for now. We'll see you here again next Wednesday, live from 1 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time because the clocks will be switching over soon. So we'll catch you guys then. Take care, ciao.